0: You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're exploring identity and immigration through the eyes of people who grew up in the United States and Canada with immigrant parents. A few years ago, I went to go see this movie called Papers. I see a lot of movies, but this screening felt really special.
1: My mom, out of
0: desperation, she brought me to this country. And she had left everything in Jamaica to come here. She had sold whatever she had.
1: And I always, you know, I always describe my mom as a lioness, you know. who who was willing and is willing to do anything for children.
0: Papers is the story of undocumented youth in the United States and the challenges they face as they turn 18 without legal status. At the premiere I attended, the theater was packed primarily with young, Latino, undocumented people, many of them passionate activists, who saw themselves or their friends in the documentary. That film, Papers, was made by director Ann Galliski and producer Rebecca Schein in collaboration with a group of immigrant youth. Ann and Rebecca recently produced a second film, Fourteen, which explores how the United States' policy of birthright citizenship came to be—how, if you're born here, you become a citizen automatically. The complicated reality of being a citizen kid born to undocumented parents has shaped the lives of millions of Americans. Anne herself, it turns out, is the daughter of a large family of undocumented immigrants, Ukrainian refugees who fled Stalin in the 1930s. Anne has a worn black-and-white photo from that time that shows her dad, her grandma, and her uncles and aunts in immigration detention at the U.S. border. I asked Anne to come into the studio to talk about that photo, her family's story, and how their undocumented history has impacted her life's work as a filmmaker. So, Anne, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having
1: me. Um, You're holding a photo. Can you tell me about the photo? Can you tell us what this photo is? Yes, this is one of our prized family heirlooms in the Galiski family. It is um, a photograph of my grandmother, Marcelina, um, and my aunts and uncles and my dad um, sitting on her lap. I could tell you that their their ages. This was taken when they were in immigration detention. This photo was taken in 1935. And so they're, they're in immigration detention in 1935. In the United like, States, in El Paso.
0: And this is like an official government photo that's taken?
1: This is an official government photo. I'd really like to see it in the official file. And that's what I'm, you know, I'm, a, I, I'm contacting. I'm writing to the National Archives. It's not there, but it's probably in the... USCIS records, and so we're we're trying to get. I want to see this in the file. So, how old are the people in this photo, and what do they look like? So, my grandmother sitting in the middle. I bet she's about in her late 30s, and sh- there are five little kids around her. Uh, my uncle Tony is the eldest. Then Helen. Tony's probably uh, 13. Helen, then Vera, then Joe, and my dad, who was four years old at the time, is sitting on my grandmother's lap. Um, They look all scrubbed up and ready for this official photograph, um, and they look really quite serious. So your family is originally from the Ukraine? They're originally from the Ukraine. So how did your grandparents and
0: their five kids from the Ukraine wind up in immigration detention in El
1: Paso, Texas. That's a great story. So, and this is one I grew up hearing, and this is one of the reasons I'm so interested in, the immigration, in immigration stories in the United States, because this was our pioneer story. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles. I knew my grandfather. I, I didn't know my grandmother. All of my aunts and uncles were nearby. When we had get-togethers, they would talk about it. Um, it was, you know, it was never hidden from me. Um, I, you know, remember doing school projects from when, from elementary through high school, college, and graduate school. Um, so my grandparents, um, lived in the Ukraine in a town called Zhytomyr. I've never been there. Um, some family members have gone to visit. And, um... He was conscripted during World War One. He fought uh, in the Tsar's army. He was wounded. Uh, he went, the, the train to take him uh, away from the front, went through his town and he jumped off and he went to his village. And they said, what are you doing? You're going to get caught. You're away without leave. You need to go back. And so... He was trying to run away, and he went back. He went to the hospital, um, and he eventually was sent back to the front. He eventually ran away without leave again, and he was caught, and he was sent to Siberia. So he was in Siberia when the Russian Revolution happened, and they were going to camps, and the Bolsheviks were going to camps in Siberia and letting people out, and they said, we'll let you out if you fight for us. And I remember him. It's extraordinary that I knew him. I could hear this from him. And he said, Bolsheviks, come. They said, you want to fight for us? We'll let you out. And we said, sure. (laughs) And so, you know, then he said, and then we all... Ran away to our village, and um, and so and so the Bolsheviks liberated the camp, and he said he'd fight for them, and then was like, "See you, um, yeah, basically, I'm going home yes. finally." So they 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 lived through. I don't know a lot of details about the time of the revolution and right after, but they um, he wasn't married at the time. He he met my grandmother. They started a family. They had an extended family, um, and it was during. Uh, they could see that things were getting bad. Um, they had a little farm. Um, there was a great deal of uh, collectivizing farms going on, and it, w- it would increase in the years after. Um, and a, a story of forced starvation in the Ukraine that is little known in the West, that I think is, is something that we really, I would really like to, to bring to light more. But they decided to leave. Extraordinary. They had four kids at the time. Uh, They didn't have much money. They made a plan to get out in 1928. They knew they wanted to come to the United States. I don't know, you know, what the, you know, sort of village gossip was uh, about where to go. But immigrants just like today kept in touch with each other. And but it would have had to be through, you know, letters that eventually maybe got somewhere. Um, You know, go to this place, look up this person. And so they they bravely went on their own. These two adults and four kids uh, traveled uh, by train eventually across uh, Europe to Marseille. Um, they took a uh, ship from Marseille to Veracruz in uh, southern Mexico. And knowing the whole time that they eventually wanted to come to the United States... But they knew enough, way deep in the Ukraine, that you at that time it was really hard to get in directly to the United States. They were going to go slowly, you know, if they needed to, through Mexico. And we, we called my grandfather, Pop, and we said, Pop, well, why didn't you go to Canada? And he said... I was in Siberia. I don't want to be cold anymore. (laughs) So, I mean, that's really, I don't know if that's true, but I think it could be. It's really funny. So, you know, the family history was shaped by him having been in Siberia and not wanting to be cold. They ended up living in Mexico for seven years. They, um, I said in in a letter I wrote recently, they were befriended. They worked. They saved their money. They I've heard stories about the different um, families who they became friends with um, the town where my dad was born. So my dad was born in a in a town in Chihuahua, uh, Galeana. They uh, my aunt uh, organized a number of trips to go to Galeana to go see if they could find anyone they remembered. And all these folks remembered them. You from, mean like years later? Yes. They remembered them from nine from the nineteen thirties. Extraordinary. Um, and so anyway, a long a long and rambling story that they moved north, they worked, they were helped, I am sure, by so many people that I've heard, you know, stories about over the years. And I'm not sure what the impetus was to finally make the crossing into the US. Now it's the middle of the worldwide depression. Um, I don't know what, what the, how they came to that decision that this is the time. But they then had these five kids. um, And this would have been the middle of the 1930s. This is 1935 at this point. So my grandfather went to Juarez um, across from El Paso and hired an uh, American attorney, and told the whole situation, and we want to get in, and this attorney said, well, you uh, need to buy some land so that you can be called a farmer, and you'll, and so he said, okay, I'll do it, and he, they bought some land, evidently, sight unseen, in Arizona. This is how the story goes, Um, and the you know, so they gave them all their money that they had saved over all these years. And then he went back to Galeana to get the family, to get prepared, to, to make this move. Uh, I think it was about a month later. They go back to Juarez, and the attorney was gone. The papers were gone. The money was gone. And those dreams were really dashed. Um, but let's just take a second there. Because so your family...
0: Has come all the way from the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. They're fleeing. Uh, they're, they're fleeing starvation and consolidation of farms, where farms are being taken away. They're fleeing conscription. They spend seven years at least trying to get to the United States, and then at that point, everything is taken away from them. Do you have you ever talked to your family about how they felt
1: at that point? You know, that part was just sort of understood like because the next part of the story was of course we're gonna go like it wasn't um there wasn't a mystery about it it made perfect sense to all of us and this is what i mean about growing up hearing the story when i hear people talk about uh quote-unquote illegal immigration i think okay i let's hear the whole story i wonder what happened um I don't know how many days they stayed in Juarez before they made this decision. Um, But he was pop. My grandfather was convinced that if he could cross and talk to the immigration authorities, he could persuade them to let them stay. So they hired uh, coyotes and and, um, one of my dad's earliest memories, um, and the older siblings talk about it too, was riding uh, horses across the Rio Grande in the middle of the night. And then they remember, you know, going and, and the whole family went to this little shed and they stayed there in the morning. And my grandfather left and he went to find immigration. And he said, I'm here. Here's what happened. Um, I want to explain the, the story to you. And of course, he was arrested. And that's when uh, they went and got the family and they put them in um, some kind of a, a charity, Catholic charity house where this photo was taken. And he was held in in immigration detention on his own for about a month. Um, they're trying to get the story, figure it out. And this this I only learned in the last few years that at that point, at the end of that month, The U.S. authorities didn't say, okay, you're cool, you know, we found some record of some land. Or, you know, they didn't say, oh, sure, you can stay. They were deported then. They were asked to leave then. And they didn't. And... uh, It sounds like your family has
0: a long history of... um ignoring the instructions of authority figures.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think I need to remind my parents of that. (laughs) I grew up with
0: this. (laughs) You know, when the the, uh, Russian, when the Tsarist army tells your grandfather to keep fighting, he says, "Mm, I'm going to go home. And when the the Bolsheviks say, you should fight for us, your grandfather says, "Mm, I'm going to go home. And now at this point, when the United States Immigration and Customs Enforcement says, Get out of here.
1: He says, mm, no, this is my home now. I love that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, this is my home. And they stayed. And Do you know how they escaped from Customs Enforcement? Well, I imagine at that time there was not a big budget. There certainly was no fence at the border. Um, there was probably a booth somewhere on a bridge. Um And... It wasn't about, I mean, they basically were um, released and asked to leave. They weren't taken across the border. So at that point, they went to Arizona and then on to Los Angeles. And like immigrants do all over the country, they found the people from the Ukraine. They found the people, they found some people from their own village. My uncle Tony ended up marrying someone. From his village in the Ukraine, who he re-met again in Los Angeles. Um, so, did your family ever face deportation again? Because at this point, they were they were in the country without legal documentation. Exactly. All five kids and the parents. Exactly. Well, and you know, my my dad is growing up. He he, you know, he was born in Mexico. He doesn't remember much of that. Um, he certainly isn't identifying with the Ukraine. He's going to high school um, at right after he graduated from high school. Everyone's, you know, all the other kids are older than he is. There's another very sad tangent to the story um, that's a separate story, but it's that my grandmother and the new baby daughter— were both killed in a car accident mm. um, at the beginning of World War II, um, hit by a drunk driver. That's a, that's a separate and sad story. So they got through, they muddled through that tragedy, and then um, y- some years later, at the beginning of the Korean War, their file was reopened because there was a, Renewed Red Scare. They were from the Ukraine. They uh, were accused of being disloyal to the United States. They had already been ordered deported and hadn't left. And they received these deportation notices in the mail. Now, I don't know why all those years they never, I don't know what their interactions were with immigration in all those years. But the older. Sons had been in the military, the in the United States, military. in the U.S. military. And so when they're, you know, they were all they all got these letters and then they all fixed it in different ways. So uh, my Aunt Helen was married to a serviceman. And because of that, that helped. I've seen my Aunt Vera's documents um, that. I mean, this really blew my mind, actually. It was when, during the making of papers that I saw this. It says, because of the hardship um, of your citizen daughter and citizen husband, and because you are of the white race, it basically says, I mean, the white privilege is spelled out right there in her papers. Um, we do not recommend deportation. Wow. So, so at some point, this, this, this is your Aunt Vera? Yes, Gets this letter. Well, she, so they all had to do their case and present their case uh, individually. And Vera's case was she had a, a daughter born in the U.S., a citizen daughter. She was married to a citizen who had also been in the service. And this other mind-blowing thing that I did not grow up hearing, which was the stamp of white privilege, Um, really shocked me and and depressed me. Um, But to not acknowledge it is disingenuous. My dad, the youngest, you know, so he was this East L.A. kid. He went to his hearing, his immigration hearing by himself. And he said, "I I don't need any help. I'll just go. And the hearings officer wound him up and tried to catch him in something that could be perceived as a lie and um, he said, you might have to edit this out, aw, shit, into, you know, the microphone. And the hearings officer turned off the tape and yelled at him, basically, for disrespecting him. And in the file wrote that he recommended deportation to the country of his birth because he was a person of bad moral character for saying that during his interview. Wow. So then he was really in trouble. And this wasn't just an old deportation notice that his parents got. This was one for him. Deportation to the country of his birth. Which is Mexico. Mexico. They had a friend who was a priest, and the priest said, let's try to get you into the army. And he said, I could get myself into the army. And so he went to Army recruiting. There was a draft on and but he couldn't wait for the to be called up. He needed to enlist and um so he went to recruiting and said, "I need to go, and I need to go now, and this is why and uh they did take him and early on in, in well he was in boot camp still, um his commanding officer wrote a letter which we have that says that he is a person of good moral character and they recommend that he be naturalized in the United States. So he took a route that of joining the military, which was part of what the dream act would have allowed. It had it passed uh, in 2010. One option was college. One option was joining the military. So he's been with me to events uh, with our film papers and he says, "My advice for for young people who are trying to, you know, get their affairs in order, you know, don't don't swear in your hearing." <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up hearing these stories, and then you went on to become a
0: filmmaker yourself, and you've made two films that deal with with I- issues of immigration. And the first one is called Papers, and the second one is called Fourteen, and they both revolve around um, they're both documentaries that revolve around people's real stories of of immigrating to the United States or um, being born to people who, who immigrated to the United States and trying to become legal citizens and the hardships involved with that. Um, can you talk about how your experience hearing these stories of your entire family coming here without papers have has influenced your work as a filmmaker and the stories that you want to tell on screen?
1: Um, it has everything to do with it. I, I feel like Um, as a documentary filmmaker, hopefully one day I'll make a film that's not about immigration, but that day isn't coming anytime soon. Um, This demonizing of immigrants, I absolutely don't, I can't get my head around it. Um, If we didn't come from immigrants, we came from enslaved people or Native Americans that's our story. And uh, it's just a matter of which, which generation we were built, you know, born in. I think at its root, um, what I'm trying to expose is sort of a white supremacy that we've become comfortable with, that is absolutely unacceptable to me. Well, that point
0: you bring up about how our immigration system is built fundamentally on white supremacy is really explored in these films. And can you talk about how
1: that issue specifically is explored in papers and in 14? I'll talk a little bit about 14 since it's a lot of my mind. So this film is about birthright citizenship. The 14th Amendment says that if you're born here, you're a citizen. I I do know that sentence word for word, but I won't say it. (laughs) No, say it, say it. (laughs) All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. One of the best sentences in the Constitution. It's the first uh, sentence in the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment came about after the Civil War because we needed to make the freed slaves citizens. Uh, The 13th Amendment freed the slaves. The 14th Amendment is when you look at um, decisions in the Supreme Court, human rights cases, it's all about what the 14th Amendment says. Um, and And the birthright citizenship clause is just one sentence of it. An absolutely brilliant sentence. And I think it is one of the things that actually makes this country great. Within a few generations, more or less, people do integrate. Um, if you travel around the world, this is not the case. I mean, we, I mean, I, I. tried to shy away from American exceptionalism. However, there are some cultural things about how we do things that I'm so proud of, and that is that it's not based on where your parents were born. It's based on where you were born, um, So, but to get to this point in our history, um, a slave family, Dredd and Harriet Scott, um, had to sue, were suing for their freedom in Missouri, and and hundreds of people did this, I didn't know. Even in the St. Louis court alone, there were at least 300 cases of folks who had been taken north, um, you know, basically against the rules of slavery— and they they sued for their own freedom. The case ends up going to the Supreme Court after, you know, seven years. And because of the times and bad luck, it ends up at the Supreme Court. And in one of the worst decisions the Supreme Court has ever made, uh, they did not uh, grant them their freedom. In fact, said... You can't bring a case because you're not citizens, and you can never be citizens because you're from Africa. So that made it very clear that after the Civil War, something needed to be done to have a, a broader understanding of what citizenship was. If you look at any of the rhetoric going on right now, with, especially with the Republican presidential campaign, it's loaded It's not even coded racism. It's pretty blatant to me. Um, There's a term that is used called accidental birthright citizenship that I hope to do some writing about because it's this idea, and this is coming from the far right, that some people are meant to be born here somehow and some people weren't. And if that is not some kind of crazy notion of manifest destiny and white supremacy, I don't know what is. So they're saying that if your parents are undocumented, you were you're an you know you're it's an accident that you're a citizen. Well, why am I a citizen? I don't remember as some kind of. Ethereal being deciding to be born on this side of a border. I mean, uh, of course, if there's anything, it's everyone is accidentally born where they're born.
0: You can seek out Angeliski's film Papers, Stories of Undocumented Youth, and 14 both of which you can host a screening for if you want to get involved. Look them up at PapersTheMovie.com and 14TheMovie.com.